Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. This is show number seven, and I'm Eric Armstrong. I'm a dialect coach for television, film, and theater, and I teach voice, speech, text, and accents at York University in Toronto, Canada. Phil Thompson is joining me today via Skype. Phil, are you there? I am indeed. Nice to see you. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever time of day it is in in uh, the land where people are listening to podcasts. Indeed, indeed. I am, yes, a voice and speech coach at various regional theaters, and also I teach here at the University of California. Right. So we've managed to make it to our seventh show so far. Thank you very much, listeners, for listening along with us while we play uh, over the Skype airwaves and come to you through your listening device or computer. Uh, Today we're going to talk to you about the most popular vowel sound in the the English language. Details at eleven. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to we're going to tell you a little bit about how we do glossonomia. If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, each week we take a vowel or a consonant of English and we discuss it in depth. So this week we're on a vowel, and next week we'll be digging into a consonant. And as we explore each sound, we'll cover ideas that arise about the nature of how sounds are made, talk about why they behave the way they do in words and in syllables, and discuss the other versions that crop up in different varieties of English, and usually some history about the sound. So today we get to talk about schwa. Uh, Schwa's schwa's a great word in and of itself. Um, Do you you know something about the history of schwa? Well, I, I have my own private false etymology of the word that came out of ignorance. So uh, let's start there, and then you can tell me the real deal once we're done there. This was actually a a challenge set by my teacher, Dudley Knight, when I was a graduate student. This was pre-Wikipedia. And uh, so he challenged us all to come up with a definition. And so here here was my etymology of schwa, that in the mid-15th century in Europe, uh, there was a terrible disease that spread through the communities uh, in which people's tongues would turn black and fall out. Uh, and it was called Schwarzunge, or black tongue disease. And uh, when people were struck with the Schwarzunge, they w- could only go, uh, uh, because they had no <laughs> tongues. And that was eventually shortened to Schwa. He has the Schwa. So it, it's completely wrong, uh, but it amuses me. It amuses me, too. That's great. Uh, but uh, schwa comes to us in English from the Hebrew word shva, um, and uh, that comes from a vowel sound uh, or a sign for Hebrew um, that uh, in modern Hebrew actually mm. represents a very different vowel sound, yeah. um, either a or the absence of a vowel. So and these uh, are the, the nikud vowels, the dots that go on the Hebrew text. Yeah. That's right, because Hebrew is a language that's written like Arabic, where the symbols that we see are essentially the consonants, and the indication of the vowels that link those are represented by little dots that go with those consonant symbols. Um, so schwa comes to us ultimately in its, its German spelling, S-C-H-W-A. Now, literally, uh, it can also mean 
an emptiness. So uh, as the weak vowel sound or unstressed vowel sound, it's as if it's not a real, real vowel. It's less than a vowel somehow. That makes a little bit of sense. It's a, it's a gap or a, a, a reduced version of a vowel. And I think that's an important thing to think about is that a lot of times the schwa sound appears in places where in a strong form of a word we get a full bore vowel sound. Yeah. So it, it steps in as the filler sound a lot of the time. And it's that explains, by the way, why we have it in so many places. I, I've heard people say that uh, schwa is the most common sound and that we'll, uh, English is moving through its degradation towards more and more schwa-ishness and that eventually we'll just be saying, uh, uh. I think that's a little alarmist. Uh, but it certainly is true that there are a lot of places, a lot of sounds that will turn into a schwa if we take our attention off of them. And some versions of English have uh, other weak vowels mm -hmm. that, so that they have uh, perhaps a, a range of possibilities for weak vowels where many North Americans use more schwa than uh, the other weak vowels. And so if the perception is that global English is gradually becoming North Americanized, particularly by the influence of media like television and film, then the thought is that this, this uh, great gray ooze of English that is coming about because of globalization of English, uh, that, that those weak i and u uh sounds are slowly becoming yeah. schwas, that could be a very bad thing. Although um, there are plenty of languages that have a smaller vowel inventory than English, yes? Absolutely. So maybe less would be more, and it would help people to learn English faster. Uh, there's something I wanted to pick up on that, that you mentioned that it's a, a filler sound, and certainly since you and I have had the experience of editing these episodes, we can hear that, that you and I use that filler uh, sound quite a bit. And uh, it's interesting to listen to how that sound in different accents uh, has some is influenced by the way that accent sounds, so that some people might say, eh, others might say, ah. That yes, in Ireland they say M, yeah. M, M. And uh, those, those differences do help to give us a reference to a different accent. I think our uh filler sound is more open than schwa is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think uh, you're right. In our pre-show chat, we were talking about how do you make your schwa, <laughs> and uh, I gave my explanation that schwa is the sound I make when someone punches me in the stomach. Yes, and my version was that, uh, that schwa is the sound I make when I am caressed gently on the stomach, a sort of an, uh, I, I suppose that's my sound of discomfort as well. <laughs> so uh, uh, that schwa sound, kind of neutral on the, vowel chart, schwa falls uh, in the spot right in the middle. Yeah. And if we have a vowel that is tending towards schwa, we put an X over it to indicate that it's mid-centralizing. It's going towards the middle of the vowel chart, becoming more schwaish in its <laughs> More <sound>. schwarthy. <laughs> so, uh, here we go. Spellings, if we're going to talk about schwa's in words, it can be represented by any of the five vowel letter sound yeah. uh, symbols in the English 
alphabet. So we get schwas that are represented by A's in words like about, or an E in a word like taken, or an I in a word like pencil, uh, an O in eloquent, or an uh, a U in supply, or a Y even in a word like sibyl. So uh, all of those sounds, if they have all those letters, if they have inherent vowel qualities that we associate with them, if they're in an unstressed syllable, they are very likely to shift towards the middle of the vowel chart. Exactly. Um, uh, an, an interesting example of a word with a schwa in it uh, was brought up on a blog called Language Log. Uh, Benjamin Zimmer, writing on Language Law, wrote a lovely little article on the word skadoosh. Um, this is a word that uh, Jack Black coined in the movie Kung Fu Panda. And uh, it was, it, I think it caught a lot of people's attention, particularly in the trailer, um, that as the panda did a certain action, he, he said skadoosh. And uh, interestingly enough, when I saw the film, when that actual physical action was done in the film, he said something different. He used the word skadoosh at one point in the film, but not in the point where it was in the trailer. So that, that was a very memorable moment for me because I'd noticed that word so strongly in the trailer. Um, but Benjamin Zimmer's point was, how do we spell skadoosh, this new made-up word? Uh, should it be spelt with an A? Should it be spelt with an I or a U or an E or any other version? It's um, a wonderful example of, of something that never happens, this sort of back construction to say we have the word, we know how it's pronounced, and then finding the letter that underlies or, or is the strong form of what is, in this case, it, it's not just a new word, it's a word that seems to have come with no etymological roots to it. And so any spelling is okay. Sure. Some people assumed that there were roots associated with words like skedaddle, and so assumed it should have spelling connected to skedaddle, and others saw or heard in that word the word skidoo, and so that, of course, has ski and do put mm -hmm. together, and so that, that might motivate some people to spell it one way or another. Um, so this is a good time for us to now talk about the other great group of words that might take schwa, and those are those words in languages that are non-rhotic. Yeah. But we have to talk first about what that means. Yes. Uh, rho is uh, the Greek letter for R, and so that ought to be our, our starting point, I guess. We could say that rhoticity is R-ishness, and uh, some languages are, some accents, we could say, are rhotic and some are non-rhotic, and that doesn't mean that there's R going all the way through. It's really about how those languages deal with uh, nerd alert, post-vocalic R's. That is, R's that happen after a vowel. Uh, so, if I were to say the word nurse or fear or car, in my accent and in your accent, there's an R quality to that. But if I were from Brooklyn or Bermondsey, I would not make that R action. And that's the difference of roticity, whether or not we're adding R-ishness in those positions where there's an R in the spelling and it's after a vowel. 
So uh, a word that uh, in English is ending it, uh, with an er sound in, in a rhotic accent, a rhotic version of English. Uh, in non-rhotic versions of English, they just use schwa. So a word like letter is letter. Uh, a word like actor becomes acta. Color, color. Martyr, martyr. Figure, figure. So again, that schwa sound goes in the place of the er sound. And the uh, lexical set word you said at the beginning, the word letter is what J.C. Wells uses to indicate that sort of condition. That is to say, a neutral vowel with the concept of R that would come out in a rhotic accent and is absent in a non-rhotic accent. So that schwa can be called a rhotic schwa, or I've seen it called a schwer <laughs> in some instances. And because the little hook that's attached to the symbol for the schwa looks a little bit like a little wing on the back of the schwa, I've been known to call it a flying schwa. My friend Alona Pierce taught me that name. That's uh, a beautiful I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, flying It schwa. sounds like a, a football move. You would call a flying schwa on the field. <laughs> um, so uh, that... That's typically what I call the symbol, the flying schwa. Uh, I should bring up, since we've got the rhotic version of letter, there's one that is without rhoticity, both in rhotic accents and non-rhotic accents, that J.C. Wells represents with the lexical set word comma. So there are certainly words that have a final schwa that sounds, in a way, identical. The, the word comma, comma, and commer uh, yes. would be identical, essentially, in a non-rhotic accent, because the R-ishness isn't present. But we could divide those categories of words into the ones that have a hidden R and those that don't have a hidden R, I suppose we could say. Sure. And I have heard people say, when they hear a word uh, like uh, karma, that they, they insist they hear the R, that there, there's an R in there, even though there isn't. Necessarily. Uh, yes, if you hear an RP speaker talking about North Korea, I have a hard time distinguishing career from Korea in, in some accents. Sure. Um, and, of course, when a schwa goes into uh, another vowel in a non-rhotic accent, typically they'll use an R sound to link those two together. So we get things like the idea is India and Pakistan or China and Japan. So essentially, we're taking a word that is universally non-rhotic uh, idea, but that is phonetically identical to a uh, sound that could have an R in a non-rhotic accent. Idea, fear, both sound the same. So if you said fear of flying or f idea of it, you'd apply the same phonological rule, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, that linking. Exactly, linking. And, or in the case where there isn't an R in the concept of it, but you add one that's an intrusive R. Mm. But we can save some of that, I think, for our discussions of roticity, which we can do in the future. Yes, I think we will save that for coming episodes <laughs> of Glossonomia. Um, so I think it is a good point to, to check in on the idea of stressed versus unstressed. Yeah. 
we we have said this already that uh, schwa is an unstressed vowel and it happens in unstressed syllables there are versions of or or there are vowels in english that sound very similar to schwa yes that fall in stressed syllables one uh, in rhotic accents well in all versions yeah. of english the a uh sound in words like strut to some people sounds an awful lot like the sound that you'd hear in at the end of a word like comma yeah and in a non-rhotic accent the the er uh sound in a word like nurse sounds an awful lot like the schwa that we've talked about already yeah so these are in stressed syllables and so that's the significant difference between these phonemes and the schwa phoneme um that the idea of the sound is that schwa must fall into an unstressed syllable and if a very similarly formed sound were in a stressed syllable it would be subtly altered to get nurse or strut now there are versions of english that have schwa in stressed syllables replacing other phonemes so for instance we might encounter an australian accent where instead of saying kit the way you and i do yeah. they might say cut and they'd use a schwa vowel in place of the i vowel throughout their speech that reminds me of that uh, joke on jc wells blog the piece of graffiti how did that go that someone had written on a wall uh, new zealand sucks but in new zealand uh, new zealand sucks would be the central pronunciation of what the words new zealand six and that that's how it would be pronounced by a new zealander uh and so a new zealander then took a spray can and wrote australia sivern <laughs> underneath of it which of course in a new zealand accent would be sounds like new zealand six australia seven which is funny uh, can you do it in in a good new zealand uh, yeah let's say it's a Australia 6 New Zealand 7. Yes. There we go. So, so yes, in stressed syllables, uh you could get other sounds moving into that territory. It's also true that a word like strut, uh I happen I often have students who pronounce that much closer to schwa. So we get uh strut. Strut rather than yeah. strut. Sure. So there is a there is an acoustic difference as well yeah. as a phonological difference yeah. between the group of words where schwa falls in an unstressed syllable and the group of where words uh that that is the strut group of words yeah. or it, lexical set. It's convenient to say that a is in stressed syllables and e is in unstressed syllables and when one's doing phonetic transcription it's nice to be able to sort that out and know when to use an a schwa symbol and when to use uh, another symbol for the strut vowel but in fact that's no substitute for just listening to what the vowel quality is and transcribing that sure and the a uh, sound does occasionally happen in unstressed syllables yes. like unstressed <laughs> yeah <laughs> sure the other thing that schwa does is it's a helper it often shows up in diphthongs and i think we need another digression <laughs> yes i think so you you might have heard the look on my face there uh diphthong 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 uh what the heck is a diphthong well 
Well, I, I know what it isn't. What is it's it? Not a, it's not a diphthong. Ah, yes, indeed, indeed. Do you know what a diphthong is? No. <laughs> it's a small European bathing suit. <laughs> oh, no. That's, I, I can see that that's going to be making its way into my classes now. Uh, so, yes, we have uh, diphthong, and that's uh, P-H-T-H, uh, that comes to us from Greek. And uh, there's one other word I can think of in English that has that th sound, and that's ophthalmology. Oh, I've got another one. Yeah. Diphtheria. Oh, good, good, good. So a diphthong is a di-to-thong speech sound. So a diphthong is a double vowel. They're formed usually with a strong nucleus or the main part of the sound with a, a wee tail coming off the end, a shift into a more relaxed sound and perhaps a different shape, a different uh, movement of the tongue. And so we'll get into these in the future, but oi, i, ow, o, those are examples of diphthongs in English. But the diphthongs that have a schwa in them uh, are a particular set of diphthongs, which we would call centering diphthongs. Because schwa lives in the middle yeah. of the vowel space, then the diphthong is going from generally the somewhere on the periphery, on the outside of the vowel space, towards the middle. And uh, I like to think of diphthongs as sort of a bit like a vector. If you remember your math, uh, vectors join uh, points. Uh, are they Cartesian points? Is that the term we use? For the, you know, the X, comma, Y. You uh, could describe them by enumerating the X and Y coordinate. Of the beginning and the end. And so we have a, a, a starting place and an ending place. A diphthong is not just its beginning and ending, but it's the journey between those two sounds. And so uh, uh, it's more like a line on the chart rather than a pair of dots. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the, there are five in North American English that are centered. They, in North American English, where we have typically rhotic diphthongs that are, the centering diphthongs are rhotic, they have R coloring, uh, typically near, square, cure, north, and start. Those all slide ear, air, ur, or, r, sliding towards that er sound in the middle. And in North American English, that is a rhoticized central position. Now, there are, of course, non-rhotic versions that we can do of those, um, though not all of them are as comfortable uh, <laughs> yes. being diphthongs. So near, square, cure, and then the next one's north. At least historically, they people would yeah. say north, and then start. But almost nobody says north and start anymore. Although certainly there are speech teachers who are teaching that uh, articulation, a non-rhotic but centering version of force and start. Yes. So we can certainly do them, and I think it's one of those skill things. It would be great if everybody could do a non-rhotic uh, centering diphthong, all of them. But that, that idea that in, in some non-rhotic accents, we've got, we've got north and force yeah. and start. Those are, are what we call a smoothed yeah. diphthong, that they're, they're no longer diphthongs. They become a pure monothong, a single vowel, or or ah. And you could give a shot at 
smoothing the other ones, you could say near, square. I did a little bit square and cool. That's very hard to do. And in fact, the only way you really get away with that is by shifting it over into northern force and saying cool. Cool. Sure. Uh, or or maybe to kya. <laughs> yes, yes. O- or Chop out the middle part. I- in a lot of North American English, cure. Cure. Now, the other place that Schwa shows up is helping out yet again. It's a handy, handy fellow, uh, is, is Schwa. The, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that English has words that... Mm, reduce. They become weak. So a word like can often reduces down. So it becomes can. I can do that. Um, So can, can, can. Uh, A word like from or in in some English accents from becomes from and from at high speeds. Of or of becomes Mm -hmm. of. I just wanted to point out that can, moving to can, we do that pretty regularly in the stressed and unstressed forms of multisyllabic words. So we could have congress but congressional. So it's simply a matter of taking a single word and letting it do the same thing that a syllable in a word would do, and that is reduce and become more like a schwa. So, uh, sorry, I interrupted your list. So we've got can... That, to, from, of, what, uh, we've already done to a little bit, and maybe them. Uh, sure. And the, uh, I like words like uh, that are paired, like want yeah. to, uh, reducing all the way down to wanna, yeah. where we drop the T's and the to becomes just a schwa, wanta, wanna. And I suppose in other accents, dinna and kunna as well. That is did not and could not, becoming dinna and wunna and kunna. In these situations where the schwa is a reduction of a vowel that's in the word, it's been shown in studies, uh, there's a study that's in the uh, 2007 edition of the uh, Journal of the International Phonetic Association, that uh, schwa in these reduced forms within larger words uh, those are actually a little bit different acoustically yeah. from the schwas that we would encounter at the end of a word. The 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 word the the kind of schwas that we would get in a word like sofa, or uh, even uh, you know in a plural like sofas or a possessive leases or rushes, um, th- those schwas are really going to be in the middle of the mouth, yeah. mid central vowels, but. Uh, the kind of schwa we get in a word like rhapsody or begin or report or probable or suffocate, those are much more closed. Yeah. They might be further forward or further back. They're, they're on the vowel chart. They're near the top, if you will. Um, and so there, there is a subtle difference between those kinds of schwas, and they are informed by the environment where they're made. The consonants that surround those schwas affect them but also the vowel from which they evolved. They are reduced yeah. from another vowel. Um, and this we... You have thoughts on that? Yeah, though? we talked about this a little bit when we talked about uh, the happy vowel, the unstressed E ending. Uh, there's sort of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that when we observe, we 
stress. So when looking at those relaxed sounds, it's a little difficult to turn our attention onto them and keep them where they are. And certainly there's a lot of variability within a single speaker and between accents. I detect a pattern that at least is one that I like to have my students grapple with. And that is, if we were to look at a sound in a stressed syllable, that will be one of the other vowels on the vowel chart, and then we see that it's reduced towards a schwa, generally speaking, if the original or archetypal sound was towards the front of the vowel chart, it will tend to reduce towards something more close, more front, something more like i, as we talked about with kit. And if it was an u or an o, uh, it will relax some, to something more like a dead center schwa. So I think of the word photograph, that photograph, the unstressed o in the middle there is photograph, for me at least. Uh, same with photography. But when I say photography, that griff is an i to me. And so the archetype a of graph has reduced to i, not all the way to a. And that's why in words like believe or select, I certainly think I tend towards that myself, and I ask my students to be able to do that as well. Uh, a little bit of i-ishness in those unstressed syllables. And we may have touched about on that a little bit in the happy episode. Yeah, so people may be wanting to distinguish the difference between roses and roses, the plural of rose and the possessive of rosa. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's... I think there are two other things in, in terms of weak oh. uh, forms of words that they're at least still in my head. One is that when we vary the strong and weak form of that, uh, and maybe to a certain degree from, uh, we're changing the meaning somewhat. Uh, I thought that they, that word, that, is really the weak form because of its role in the grammar of the sentence. But if I thought about that, that is indicating, and so it's a strong form, and so the vowel is slightly different. So that's a case where actually the word meaning shifts between the strong and weak form. And probably the word from, uh, men are merriest when they're from home. It may be that there's a distinction between from and from, or in RP, from and from, that has some meaning in it. The other thought that I had is that the word to tends to centralize and relax when it's unstressed, but it tends to variably retain the component of it that is lip rounding or lip corner advancement. So I would tend to say to go because the g following it is a consonant and uh, it's easy to do. But to go from to every it's a little bit mushy in my mind, and so my tendency is to keep the lip rounding to make a distinction between those two syllables, to every, to go. Does that make sense? Right. It does. I think that people who don't use that strategy may be more likely to use a glottal stop on the word that begins with a Indeed. vowel, so that they would say to every and use a glottal to separate those two two vowels from one and another. And so that's certainly a strategy that people working towards intelligibility in the theater, for example, are going to want to be the masters of. Yeah. 
You know, uh, this is th- this weak form thing. Of course, it's been around for for a very long time, uh, and uh, sometimes it causes some confusion that. Uh, uh, people who teach at universities often bemoan when they look at the spelling of, of uh, their students writing the word then when they mean than. And that what's happening is that in their head, they're hearing then, which is essentially a schwa. And they're guessing that that is spelt with an E. And so they write then as then when they mean than. This is nothing new. Shakespeare's compositors did exactly the same thing, that we encounter the comparative than uh, when uh, spelled T-H-E-N um, in Shakespeare. And, of course, they, in, they intended it to yeah, be a I form. think you're letting Shakespeare off the hook. He probably made the same error, if it is an error, himself. And you don't have to go very far back in English to see that the word when, for example, had only the a sound, when, uh, so this sort of variability is a constant thing in language and that when we start to set sharp boundaries and, and blame people for going over them, I think that we're asking for trouble. And you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. There's a very much more powerful thing at work than following rules. Rules, explicit rules are not the way language works. It's implicit rules, sensibilities that a child who speaks a language understands, and they can tell you whether it's right or wrong, and you don't need to go to a book to figure that out. If there is a grammatical error, then all you're really doing is signaling what culture you come from. And it might be useful to mask your culture by changing the way you execute these things. But making the mistake of then and then, or a double negative, for example, which Shakespeare and Chaucer also used, uh, is not really an indication of uh, failure to use English properly. Yes, more failure to use appropriate choices yeah. in a certain context. And that's kind of what you and I do, is we coach people on making choices that are appropriate for the context of a given situation, a play, a film. Yeah. A TV show. Absolutely. Um, so schwa often comes up in words that uh, don't um, take a schwa in your and my speech. For instance, if I might say strawberry, someone in the UK might say strawberry uh, or even strawberry. And if they're using bury, then that's a schwa. Yeah. Um, so there's a reduction that happens in uh the, the, the British version of this uh, tag, this end of the word, um, though um, I think some words are more likely to retain their berry. Uh, you know, I might say uh, blackberry, but I still say raspberry. Uh, do you always say raspberry? I think I always say raspberry, blueberry, gooseberry, etc., uh, being a Midwesterner. Yes. Well, I suppose you're a Midwesterner uh, as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not what we call ourselves. Cent- central. We're you central. Are. Central Canada. Uh, th- there's another one of these uh, reductions of uh, a similar ending, which is airy and ori, uh, becoming uri mm. and uri. Uh, there's the, I-, I think it's Wings. Paul McCartney has the song Temporary Secretary. 
which seems to me to be a, a mockery of the American pronunciation of temporary secretary. I, I think the, the thing we have to remember about any of the Beatles is that they are really stooped steeped in uh, American musical culture, that they're trying to sing rock and roll, and that's an American sound. And they occasionally fail and and put uh, very much English or Liverpudlian sounds within what they're doing. But their, their model was the blues of the Deep South, and so that's what they're going for. Um, so uh, when we encountered words with man endings, yeah. uh, you know, barman or third base, third base man, third baseman, yeah. um, salesman, uh, the of course all those are becoming persons these day, days, aren't they? It's no longer a mailman; he's a mail carrier. Um, but uh, m- most people would say mailman, would they, in North America? Mailman? I definitely. That's my what my internal model is: the mailman. Yes. Whereas in the UK, they're likely to say postman. But some things, caveman, right? A chess man, a jazz man. You have to say man in those because they're not really reduced in the way that we expect these older ones to to do. I think it has something to do with age. I think so. That uh, the mailman, that sounds odd to me. The the postman, yes, that makes sense. Uh, But a caveman isn't... Uh, somebody in charge of caves, he's he's a man, a kind of man. Uh, it's also a, right. a later word, as you suggest, that hasn't undergone that reduction. Right. But that reduction seems to me to not be as common uh, as North American culture takes over the world. So I don't think that we're going to hear cavemen anytime soon. No. Or supermen. <laughs> That's hilarious. I think we have to use that somewhere. <laughs> um, land words are similar, yeah. right? Uh, there, there's the place uh, Newfoundland. Uh, a lot of people call it Newfoundland. Um, but uh, people from Newfoundland say land, Newfoundland. Um, and, uh, of course, some people do say Newfoundland, but they should Right, they're applying the unstressing on the wrong syllable. Um, but of course, we do say Dreamland and Dixieland and Disneyland. Um, there are, you know, Island, Holland, yeah. uh, the Highlands, yeah. uh, those, uh, you know, the Netherlands. Those are old enough that that vowel reduction has occurred. Well, there, there's another one of these distinctions that you and I were chatting about before that doesn't seem to be so much about age of the words, and that's the full ending. That. You would say wonderful, but you wouldn't say mouthful. Hmm. Because that's a noun, yeah, exactly. isn't it? A, a mouthful. Uh, unless you were saying perhaps uh, it's, it's, you know, it's toothsome, it's mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, now, when you said, uh, what did you say, beautiful? Uh, that's a great that example. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful? Full? Um, there, there isn't really a schwa on that ah, fool at the end there, is indeed. there? We need to talk about that. What's well, going exactly. on there? Well, exactly. Sometimes in this reduction process, you reduce things so far that there isn't even a gesture of opening the mouth to create any kind of vowel in there, in which case some consonants, consonants that have a continuation of voicing through them, can sort of take the place of that vowel and be syllabic consonants. Those are generally speaking, 
m, n, and l that tend to do that. So you could say, again, beautiful, or you could say believe or please. Uh, you could say chasm, shovel, uh, ambition. ambition. You could also say confusion and reduce two of them. Ooh. That's a favorite. And so, yeah, this happens quite a lot. And when you turn your gaze on it or you turn your student's gaze on it, uh, it's sometimes difficult for them to really realize that they're not opening their mouths, that they're, that they're not creating a vowel in there. They're simply shifting from one consonant to another. Yeah, great. Uh, what have we got left to talk about here? Let's see... I think we could jump down to talk about schwa epenthesis. A terrific word. And I believe we did talk about t epenthesis before, so we, we have the word at least in our arsenal. Uh, but could you give me a, a little bit of a definition? Uh, an epenthesis is when a sound appears in a word that isn't part of its spelling. Frequently these are, uh, well, not frequently, but occasionally they're perceived as inaccurate pronunciations, Often, they're where um, sounds that don't frequently go together are a little awkward fit, mm -hmm. and so uh, a, an extra sound is squeezed into the pronunciation, partly to make it a little bit more uh, accessible to the person speaking them. So, for instance, the word film being pronounced film. This is a common pronunciation in Irish English. Um, the ad addition of a... a a schwa in weren't, growen, yeah. or noen. That is a nice Southern uh, California feature I hear a lot, noen. Yes, noen, for known. And right. essentially what we're talking about is uh, undoing the clustering of consonants by putting a, a schwa in there. And certainly there are some languages that have a whole lot more alternation of vowel and consonant, fewer clusters of consonants, and they might too appenthesize uh, a schwa or some such thing. Uh, that's a one, a spicy meatball, for example. The addition of a schwa to make a consonant cluster no longer a cluster, but a series of syllables. Right. Because in their language, the phonotactics yeah. of their language, they usually release a consonant into a vowel. Whereas in English, we have lots of final consonants. Uh, in languages like Italian, uh, Final consonants are rare, and consonants typically release into vowels. Japanese has this issue, yeah. too, that Japanese generally releases into a vowel. Um, so we get things like Dwight being pronounced Dwight, or Realtor being Realtor, yeah. uh, Yogi Bear saying Picnic, those kinds of things. And uh, occasionally in songs, the, the uh, lyrics add extra syllables in order to make the word fit the rhythm of the song. So there's a very famous, well, relatively famous old English song, uh, The Umbrella Man, uh, where you get toodalumalumaloodalay, any umbrellas to fix today. That umbrella yeah. pronunciation is a That makes me example. think of I'm Ennery the Eighth, I am, I am. Ennery, yes. That's a great example. Yeah, so uh, let's keep on with our triathlon. Uh, uh, yeah, that's sounds. a great one, especially in Olympic season, that it takes some reminding for people to see that the spelling and the origin of 
triathlon and biathlon is athlon, not athlon. But frankly, we, we do that with athlete sometimes as well, that we break up right. that thl uh, consonant cluster into two syllables. And so that's why your spell checker keeps on underlining triathlon and biathlon, uh, because in fact, according to the dictionary, it's triathlon and biathlon. And I, I think that's an important place to remember that sometimes in our heads we have uh, pronunciations of words to help us remember how to spell yes. a schwa. You had a great example. Well, I, I always say genealogy, uh, which I don't even know if is a, a preferred pronunciation over genealogy, but I, I noticed that I had an impulse to spell genealogy with an O, O-logy, but it's actually... Like biology, exactly. maybe. It's very similar. However, it's genealogy, genealogy. And so in my head, I pronounce it, and those rare times when I say it out loud, I see, say genealogy, so that I can remember that it's spelled with an A, not an O. Now, that's an example of a spelling of a stressed and uh, not a schwa, but a, a stressed syllable. But there are certainly places where I think, for example, of uh, dynamite, uh, which was uh, the cri de coeur of my generation. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the character uh, or the TV show. J.J. Walker? J.J., yeah. Uh, and so there's a whole set of us, I'm sure, walking around with the first impulse to spell dynamite with an O instead of an A, dynamite. And that is the re-expansion of an unstressed syllable, but into the wrong archetypal form. J.J. Walker has much to <laughs> he, defend. He, he gave uh. so much, however. <laughs> and the show, of course, was Good Times. Um, so uh, if we're uh, moving along here, we're we're... At the what the forty minute mark now, um, we're looking at uh, the variations where schwa might show up in English in other lexical sets in other word groups. Uh, we talked a little bit about the New Zealand uh, using it on the yeah. kit lexical set, um, and um, I, I do think that one of the the challenges for North Americans is that when they're saying a word like comma or sofa, when it's a, a word on its own or at the end of a phrase or, or a sentence, you're likely to lengthen that final syllable and elevate its stress slightly. So you're likely to say that word as comma or sofa. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to distort it slightly. If uh, the classic linguistic trick is to put the word in the sentence say mm, again <laughs> so say sofa again uh say sofa one more time you're going to hear more of a sofa a schwa right as they correct it and stress it for you um and then the other the other instance of schwa coming in a different place that i uh not frequently hear but occasionally hear is in place of the final o sound in words like window tomato potato fellow uh, you hear this window tomato potato fella kind of and sound you can see that um, uh, as a feature of an old-fashioned form of cockney speech in the pickwick papers i can't remember who says it but 
somebody has a, a violent abhorrence of vidders, spelled V-I-D-D-E-R-S. There's, there's a v-w confusion going on there as well, but the uh, E-R-S ending is meant to convey the O ending, vidders. Meaning they don't like widows. Exactly, which is, seems to me cruel. Um, and I, I think Feller, with an R coloring, yeah. comes to North America via the Irish immigration to North America. Uh, and so uh, in places like Atlantic Canada, we get a fair amount of this kind of sound. In southern Ontario, um, the tomato capital of Canada, where uh, Heinz makes all its ketchup, is in uh, a place called Leamington, Ontario, and uh, older population from Leamington all pronounce it as the Tomato Festival, uh, and there's there's no O at the end of tomato. That's interesting because in the phrase there's less chance of stressing that final sound, and so it, it seems destined for reduction. But on, on its own, uh, that's a nice tomato. They would yeah, also say. Yeah. It would be interesting to hear if any speakers uh, varied their pronunciation based on where it was in the sentence. Hmm. Well, I think we might have covered everything. Do you think that's true? I, I think we might hmm. have. And if you've got something that you'd like to share with us about your schwa or schwas you hear around you, we'd love to hear about it. So remember, you can always reach us by email at glossonomia at gmail.com or share your comments with us. You can also comment on iTunes. If you get your Glossonomia through iTunes, just go into the iTunes store and type Glossonomia into the search field, and that will bring our podcast up. And then you can go down to the comment section and fill that part in. Great. But uh, generally, we're very happy that you're listening with us, and we hope that you'll listen again sometime Indeed. soon, uh, probably in a week. So Great. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks, Eric. It's always a pleasure. Talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goons.